Forgone. 14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Forgone on 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And submitted for your approval. Imagine a world where people can go outside and interact with people who are not in their own household. Guys, I can't do it anymore. I can't come up with any gag here that's any more or less Twilight Zone than what we're all living through day to day. Right. Day drinking? You have entered a world where you can't see the world. Yeah, it really feels like the day to day kind of feels like an episode of the Twilight Zone. (laughs) You guys ready to laugh? (laughs) I quarantined myself on the 10th, I think it was. And we all thank you for it. 23 days so far since I've left my house. I used to think I was a hermit, but now I hate it. I don't hate it. I had to drop some stuff off at work the other day. Benefit papers and all that need to be like presented on paper, that sort of thing. And I told them I had a state one of those stainless steel briefcases. I was just going to drive up, put it in the parking lot, and drive away. They can come by and pick it up. But the thing is, on the other side of our office building, there's actually a police station. So everybody else is like, that's a bad idea. Yeah, We should not do that. But yeah, hey, welcome. Well, if you like existential <laughs> depression, you might like the shows on the Podcast Collective. Like questioning your existence? You've come to the right show. Such as, I'm Salt Lake, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy, Tales from the Hard Side, Mom and the New Dad, and of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. What's that? Is the Red Dead Radio Hour dead? No, we're just... I, I think it actually probably has been for years, and we've been... <laughs> Everything started out on kind of a down note, so I was just, you know, going with it. Oh, okay. Oh, you're just going to take it even further? <laughs> yeah. Yep. All the way to the end uh, of the and... Let's see. Uh-oh. The last episode of the Red Dead Radio Hour, February 1st, 2018. <laughs> yeah. That's the I think I think we've done this before. We've said we need to call the list. Yeah, it was the uh, the sports lounge one. Remember that? Yeah, we probably got a few on there that are dead by now. I think we need to make sure that there's... We a- have always <laughs> been and always will be, though, and we're going to outlast all of them. Yeah. <laughs> if you want your dead show to get viewed, get listens. <laughs> we're the people that do that for you. Why am I still getting downloads? And you know, <laughs> next week I'm still going to pimp them <laughs> because it's tradition. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Reptivia. So if you're looking for more of this, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Talk shoe pod chaser noon FM, all those places you can find us on the web. Just type in 40 going on 14 and we will pop up and shine your shoes. Hey, want to shine, mister? Yeah, we're still talking daily on the uh 40 going on 14 Discord defense chat. So, uh, yeah, spell that out for them. So, if it's because some people probably are looking for it, you can't find it, they're not doing the, the link thing. Well, it's awkward because no, we need to post the link. Like, I, I could, I could let. I can, like, read out the link, but that would be odd. Oh, no, I'm just saying, like, when you're in Discord and, you know, it's like D-A-fans. <laughs> oh, I know what I'm saying. It's not the fans. Backslash, backslash. I deleted the other weird fans chat that there was no one in except for Nikki. Yeah. That was confusing. But Nikki was excited to be there. I was like, this This is a channel that no one ever uses. I think I'll just get rid of it. So, but yeah, get on. She was at a convention for one. (laughs) We made this home for you, Nikki. (laughs) The Corona chat. Aw. If you want some more of this, give us a call at 7 Right Now Rap and let us know. I've also been posting retro shows, going throwback shows. Uh, Yesterday, today, completely forgot to do one. 
Uh, yesterday was the reposting of the Mime Show. So yes, talking about mimes, mimes in your past. It was a good show. It was a great show. Give us a call seven eight six six nine nine seven two seven. Give us some new ideas. There's all sorts of stuff. Everyone's getting remade. Everything. Let us know if there's something we haven't noticed yet, or something you just specifically want to hear. Like if you've got yeah. a, something you're a fan of, you want us to talk about it. Let us. Know. Yeah, yeah. It may have been languishing in our show ideas chat uh, for months or years. Yeah, like always sunny versus cheers. Yeah, yep. I was thinking the same thing. There's plenty of precedent for people asking for shows and us just automatically doing them like the next week. Yeah, let's let's not get that. Well, I'm just saying we are we are for sale for sure. Oh yeah, we're whores. Yep. You got a hole in the wall, we'll be there. I'll spread my legs. <coughs> I'll spread his legs. You have spread my legs. Okay, I think it's about that time. <laughs> this week in music, movies, and TV. Spread. Wasn't the leg spread thing? Wasn't the Marx Brothers routine? <laughs> the uh, the date that Patrick picked for us, June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty three. The release of Twilight Zone, the movie. Do I think Patrick went to that instead of having to go back to one nineteen fifty seven fifty eight? It's way too hard to find stuff. You know. <laughs> yes. there's, there's no movie box office numbers for the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> Back in this day, Fran Drescher Sr. was in The Maid. Um, <laughs> I don't know why of all actors, Fran Drescher popped into my head right there. But anyway. An odd choice. I love it. it that, was a, that was a great choice. What are you talking about? Oh, I loved it. All right. So music. The number one song in the land in the middle of its six-week run was Flashdance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara. Yep. Yep. I remember that song, and I have nothing else to say about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, nice video. It, it was fun. It was it was kind of just there, though. Yeah. I mean, we are not the target audience for Flashdance, just in general. We aren't. No, we are not. We don't want to see a. We are not dancers, and we're not females, and we're not girls. flashers. We're not gay enough. We're only barely gay. Huh. Where has this show gone to at this point? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. I was waiting to see where he was going with this. I'm like. like... Well, I didn't want to. I wasn't going to expand on any of that anymore. I'm like, I'm not going to go too far into what percentage of gay any of us are. We're just going to move on. But we're not gay enough. Is there like a display that I'm not seeing somewhere on me that has some percentages? It's on, it's on the back of every shirt you wear. You just don't can't see it. Yeah. Oh no shit! All your, all your stats. I'll ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> this shirt say how gay I am. She's like, no, but your kisses do. Boom! Oh, it's on the back of his shirt. He should be asking his boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hyper color shirt. Oh shit! That was that was. I can't even be mad at that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Moving on. All right. So, born June 29th, Andrea Aurora Fimbres is an American singer and dancer and member of the pop group Dainty Kane. She is a soprano and was known for her vocal runs and falsetto. Try, red you want to try, you you try that again? The name of the group. Danity Kane. <laughs> Dainty Kane. It's Big Daddy Kane's little sister. She's a soprano. Third <laughs> <laughs> friend Dresher Sr. was a part of that group. <laughs> oh, Jesus. She is a soprano and was known for her vocal runs and falsetto registered harmonies, and also for having the highest vocal range of her fellow band members. 
Danity Kane had one hit, and I'll be damned if I can remember it right now. But yeah, they were like this semi-popular girl group. Never heard of them. They were a poor man's pussycat dolls. That's how bad they were. Octave could not find them, so yeah, they must not have been that big. That's what I'm saying. They were, you know, they had they had one song that hit the top forty. I don't think it got any further than that. All right. So Cheryl Ann Tweedy was born June 30th. She is an English singer and television personality. She rose to fame in late 2002 upon winning a place in Girls Aloud, a girl group created through the reality competition show Pop Stars: The Rivals. And by s- the way, girl, Girls Aloud is the poor man's version of Danity Kane. <laughs> Thank you. She began a solo career in 2009, and she has released four studio albums. Cheryl was the first British female solo artist to have five number one singles in the UK. Cheryl became a judge on the UK version of The X Factor in 2008. She mentored two of the eventual winners of the competition, Alexander Burke in Series 5 and Joe McElderry in Series 6. What a British Before name. signing in 2011 and joining the panel of the American version. She has been photographed for the covers of British Vogue, Elle, and Harper's Bazaar, and fronted cosmetic company L'Oreal from 2009 to 2018. I'm Joseph McElderry. That is such a British name. Get off my property, sir, before I strike you about the ears. Box you. Ah, before I box you around the ears. Where's the maid? I'm coming! (laughs) (laughs) Hippity-hoppity, get off mine property. (laughs) And finally, on June 18th, 19th, June 18th and 19th. June 18th through the 19th is how Americans pronounce that. June 18 minus 19. June 1st. Is this your first time on the riverboat, Mr. Manning? June 1st. June 18, 19th was Menudo's second visit to New York. They played four shows at Madison Square Garden, and all 80,000 tickets sold out within three days of going on sale. Menudo. I can legitimately say I don't remember a single song. I remember when they were this big, though. Do you guys know the whole Menudo concept? Like what yeah, the they, whole... like, rotated them out once they hit 18. Yeah, yeah. 15. Yeah, I think it was 15. 15. Yeah. So that way they'd make sure that they all didn't, none of them had deep voices, little Puerto Rican 15-year-olds. A pair of scissors could clear that up. Ouch. Yikes. Wow, they started in 1977. Yeah, Ooh. they've been around. I, I, I think we had them on a twee one point or another, and I looked into them a little bit. I couldn't believe they were around that long. I dated a Puerto Rican girl once, and it is... Fucking insane how huge Menudo is with the Puerto Rican community, I mean, because they're, that's their biggest export, you know, musically. And every single Puerto Rican girl grows up being in love with Menudo. She, hmm. yeah, she. So she was particularly smitten with Ricky Martin, who had his start in Menudo. All right, yeah, all right. Moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi which reclaimed its number one spot in its fifth weekend of release after Superman 3, which knocked it off for one week. And then people realized this is Superman 3. Right? Then the word of mouth got out, and they're like, no, 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 go see Star Wars. <laughs> right? I'd rather see a bunch of Muppets. Superman 3 was the Richard Pryor one, right? I thought with, so. With the radioactive fucking enemy. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was awful. The best thing about Superman 3 is that it was mentioned in Office Space. Hmm. All right, movies released this week included Superman 3, Twilight Zone the Movie, Yellowbeard, and the acronym of the week, P2TND. 
which I'm pretty sure is Pope's too, them nasty deacons. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was Pope's one called? <laughs> it was just called Pope's. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah no, that was uh, Porky's two the next day. Pretty close. That was Sorry, pretty Josh. Close. I thought the fact that you knew there was no Pope's one would have maybe given you a hint on that one. Wait, the Pope's isn't a thing? <laughs> <laughs> them nasty deacons. I remember Yellowbeard... Oh, was, I'm sorry. It's a Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's why I didn't. Yeah. Holy shit! Listen, listen to this cast: Graham Chapman as Yellowbeard, the main; Peter Boyle, Cheech and Chong; Peter Cook, Marty Feldman; Eric Idle; Madeline Kahn; James Mason; John Cleese. Huh. It seems like. I think we should check that out. Yeah, it seems, but I mean, it just seems to me like the the total doesn't equal the sum. I guess. I remember seeing it on TV at one point when I was a kid, but I'll remember there were boobs. Oh, well, I'm in. 1983 PG-rated movie? There were boobs. Oh, maybe I was thinking of the Corsican Brothers. Oh, no, dude, come on. It's PG in 83. There were boobs. There were a lot of boobs in PG movies back then, yeah. There were full frontals in PG Airplane, movies. Airplane, airplane <laughs> yeah. Stripes. <laughs> was Stripes R or was it PG? Stripes was R, I think. Yeah, uh, what was that Scott Bay zapped? That was PG, and there was a lot of boobs in that. Oh, there was a lot of boobs in that. Stripes. Two, I remember, I remember yeah. loving the shit out of that movie zapped. 1981, <laughs> it was rated. No, that was R. Yeah, it was R. Stripes? No, zapped. Oh, zapped was R? Oh, wow. Zapped was R, yeah. Stripes was R, too. Yeah. <laughs> what about Pope's 2? <laughs> Hang on, let me see. Pope's 2. Uh, I've got the two popes. Does that count? As the two popes or the pope's toilet? Those are the two title matches I have. I'm pretty sure those are both R, so my question is answered. <laughs> <laughs> the pope's toilet, 2007. A small South American village is in a flurry over the pope's 1988 visit. The pope's three. Never stop poping. <laughs> that's a... Electric popaloo. It's the one where they the Pope has to stop the business guy from buying up the uh, community center so they can all keep breakdancing. Yep, <laughs> you've seen it. I, I have. Who could forget? It? Who could he forget? wants to shut down the community center. <laughs> oh, this will not do. <laughs> Who could forget that electric pink miter with the lightning stripes that he had on? I can hear Josh grinding his teeth. Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> all right, TV. Number one shows in the land were 1983's Dallas, 60 Minutes, Dynasty, and The A-Team. Yep, that's a that's an 80s lineup for sure. Yep. Also, the TV show Loving is an American television soap opera that debuted on June 26th and ran for a total of 3,169 episodes. Uh, it was a two-hour primetime movie, and the next day became a half-hour weekday soap opera. God, 3,169 episodes. That's insane. Yeah. What's insane is is when you we had this talk one time in another tweet is when you look up like the most episodes ever there's a show in in the UK that is in the coronation 22, thousand, yeah yeah 22,000 yeah. episodes and counting. That's insane. Now this one actually had a lot I mean it had a lot longer than uh the 3,000 episodes cuz after they finished loving they had two sequels to this one. Did you know that? Yeah, well, um, loving American style or something like that, wouldn't it? No, it was loving, touching and squeezing. Oh jeez. I was going to make that joke, damn it. <laughs> I was waiting to make that joke, you fucker. <laughs> mm, I regret falling for that. I don't. 
Because as soon as I said loving American style, I was like, no, that was love American style. What is he talking? And you already got the joke out by then. KLDH, now KTKA TV in Topeka, Kansas. For all of our Topeka listeners, we got that clarified (laughs) for This this is how how weak this week was. It's, It's Topeka, not Topeka. That's what I said. No, you said Topeka. Topeka. No, I think you said Topeka. It's Topeka. Topeka. Anyway, go ahead. Nikolaj. Yeah, I'm saying the same thing. Nikolaj. <laughs> Dainty Kane, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, KTKA TV went live on June 20th, giving Topeka <laughs> its first full-time ABC affiliate. Topeka. Who can forget that? Well, we never will now. <laughs> Topica. That's it. Topica, Kansas. I'll allow it. All right. And lastly, moving on to sports. Bobby Ray Mercer was an MLB outfielder who played for 17 seasons between 1965 and 1983, mostly with the New York Yankees. He retired June 20th and later rejoined the Yankees as a broadcaster. On the final day of the U.S. Open at Oakmont Country Club on June 20th, Larry Nelson won by one shot from Tom Watson in a storm-laden finish. Ooh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Huh. Now, is that just... Wait, is that, like, storm-laden? Is that just, was just a, a rough game, or was there actually storms? No, there was actual storms. Like, the, uh, it kept raining, and they have, kept having to, like, uh, put it off and stuff. Pronounced uh, storm-laden. It's Ben's cousin. Proud of yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see what you did there? I feel like we have to rub his nose in it. Right? Topeka. (laughs) (laughs) On June 22nd, the National Hockey League's Board of Governors approved a new overtime rule, decreeing a five-minute sudden death period to settle tied games. Should the overtime fail to decide a winner, the game would remain an official tie. Playoff games are played in sudden death until a winner is determined. The reason they did this was because the previous year of 840 regular season games, 127 of them ended in ties, which is more than 15% of them. That ain't good. Yeah. Well, when you have such low-scoring games. Right. Not and they decided that it would, it would be a little bit better for the viewers if you know more wins happened rather than just ties all the time. Yeah. Outside yeah, of cricket, yay. hockey is a sport I wish I knew more about. It's impressive. I can't do it at all. I don't know how to skate on ice. So you're a rollerblader? Is that what you you're talking no, I don't know how to skate, period, to be honest with you. I don't know how to rollerblade, ice skate, anything. I don't know how to do any of that. Skateboard, nothing. If it's, you know, if there are wheels between me and the ground, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> Remind me not to drive with you anymore. Right? I was just thinking that. Well, yeah, of course. Oh, yo. <laughs> <laughs> to pizza. That's exactly what I meant, you dummies. <laughs> I meant directly between my feet and the ground, you schmuckholes. What did I do? <laughs> Guilt by association, motherfucker. All right, I'm back. Lastly, in sports, at the Cricket World Cup held June 25th at Lords London, India upset West Indies by 43 runs to win their first title. Mohinder Amarnath was player of the match. I don't know what this means. This was just cut and paste. Player of the match with three out of 12 off seven overs. Comma. Maybe it's three twelfths. Doesn't make much more sense, but. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not thinking that that clears anything. Oh, up. it's on sale. It's three twelfths off. So he's a discount cricketer? 
No, he was player of the match. He can't be discount. Maybe the match wasn't very good. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's held a target. Okay. Take us out, keyboard Joel. Yeah, I can't, I can't even figure out what that one... No, 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 no. The Twilight Zone. Probably one of the most recognizable theme songs ever to be, uh, to be put together. It started in 1959. Written by Rod Serling. How many episodes did he write? Out of uh, the five-year run and 156 episodes, he wrote 92 of the episodes. Wow. That's yeah. more than I thought. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't realize it was that many. So uh, Twilight Zone, the original series, it was kind of an unusual thing. It was a serial show, Unconnected, and Rod Serling, as writer, brought... Essentially, what was at the beginning of it, maybe some pulp sci-fi into the mainstream. Rod Serling himself had an amazing kind of life. Uh, he was born in December 25th in 20, uh, 1924 and very interested in radio and uh, radio stations and uh, shows at the time. In fact, he was a huge fan of Arch Obler and Norman Corwin. Uh, two of his favorite writers, which wrote many, many, like, 1930s, 1940s serial radio shows. Wrote for the school newspaper, and it established a reputation as a social activist. Hmm. Yeah. Early on. Uh, he began his military career in 1943 in the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 11th Airborne Division. He was jumping out of planes? <laughs> Yeah, yes. Rod had a very interesting life. That's a crazy motherfucker. Oh, just wait. During his time in the army, he got into uh, boxing to vent his aggression and uh, had 17 bouts and was known for his berserker style of getting his nose broken in the first bout and again in the last bout. Was it welterweight? What's, his, what's the lowest one? Flyweight. Yeah, because yeah, he was uh, actually, Rod Sterling was five foot four. Oh, Jeez. I didn't know that. Yeah. While he was a paratrooper. So he had little man syndrome, which is what explains a lot about why he actually did really well. Cause hmm, yeah, it's kind of, kind of aggressive, but uh, mm -hmm. his division saw first combat in 44 uh, where they were, uh, was not being used as paratroopers were actually as light infantry during the battle of Leyte, L E Y T E. It's a Pacific campaign under going up against in the Philippines against Filipino guerrillas. He was eventually transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed Death Squad, because of its high casualty rate. It had over a 50% casualty rate. Time in the late... Josh, you're the vocabulary guy. L-E-Y-T-E. Late, late or late? I think it's just late. I'm not sure, though. Late? Okay. Uh, so I'll go with late, then. In his time in late, he saw death every day. Martin Levy. Uh, Levy apparently was delivering a comic monologue for the platoon as they were resting under a palm tree when a food supply crate was dropped from a plane above and then decapitated him as it landed. What? <laughs> Yikes. How a showstopper. <laughs> How do you follow that? I know, right? <laughs> oh, okay, so apparently it is pronounced most commonly either Leite or Leite. Uh, go with Leite. All right, Leite, so... you're my knight in shining armor. And I love you. <laughs> Are you sure you're not like 68? <laughs> no. 
Uh, so, well, Rod Serling led the service funeral services for Levy and places star David over his grave and later set several of his scripts in the Philippines and used the unpredictability of death as a theme in much of his writing. Uh, eventually, he got wounded, one to his kneecap. The guy, I mean, the guy had a serious, like, capital, bold print life. He was eventually deployed by D uh, General Douglas MacArthur for the Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, that landed in Tagale Ridge into Manila to take back the city and spent a month taking Manila back. They took the portions of the city back over to Japanese control. Japanese uh, local civilians would throw gratitude parties for them. And during one of these parties, they were fired upon, and Sergeant Lewis noticed that Rod Serling himself ran into the line of fire to rescue a performer who was on stage. Even then, he knew the, the importance of talent. Yes, that one can sing. Let's save them. He walked out of the war with combat infantry badge, a bronze star medal, a purple heart, Army Good Conduct medal, American Campaign, Asiatic Campaign medal, Philippine Liberation medal, Army... Army of Occupation Medal, World War II Victory Medal, a parachutist badge uh, with one combat jump device, which I guess is the one star that's there, and then the glider badge. After he left, he was in rehab for a while. I thought they had to ration metal back then. Used it all. Yeah, he was in rehab for a while, went back, and uh, went back to school to study, where he met his wife, Carolyn Louise Carol Kramer. For extra money in his college years, he worked part-time testing parachutes for the United States Army Air Force and received $50 for each successful jump and had once been paid 500 half before and half ever for hazardous test uh, jumps. And his very last test jump was earning him $1,000 as he tested a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers. <laughs> a crazy motherfucker. And he did this one week before his wedding. <laughs> well, she didn't know about it, I bet. Um, I lay you a bet. <laughs> he was like, where are we going on this? I have to pay for this honeymoon. You guys got any jobs? Just that crazy-ass jet ejection seat, dude. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> Point me to it. Yeah. So eventually he got into radio. But I think this is all kind of explaining a lot about a, the brain of a guy who would create the show we're going into. I mean, he I knew he led in a, a really crazy life, but I didn't know all the details. Yeah. It, it, it really wasn't. Well, he got into radio and eventually into television and started doing freelancing and weekly dramatic shows for a Cincinnati station. Eventually, the Craft Television Theater, he wrote a 70-second script for one of their contests, and it was called Patterns. This is the one that got him his big break. Patterns starred Ed Begley Sr., Everett Sloan, and Richard Kiley, and got him into television. But um, eventually, October 2nd, 1959, premiered on CBS. Uh, he fought hard to maintain creative control. He hired scriptwriters that he, expect, uh, he respected, such as Richard Matheson, who you may know from uh, I Am Legend, and Charles Beaumont, uh, who did episodes of The Howling Man, The Printer's Devil, Number 12 Looks Like You, another, I mean, he stuck with high... Respe highly respected sci-fi writers, and uh, drew on his own experience for many episodes, boxing, military life, airline, airplane pilots, social views and racial rela relations and all that. I essentially became a figurehead in 
television for the sci-fi serial. He was the first one, being that he was so much into radio and so much into these serials when he was in college and he went, after he got out of the army, that people were... It, it, it's almost like us, like, like with The Witcher. We see the book, we see the video game, we see the Netflix adaptation, and we're like, oh my god, this is exactly the way I have, I envisioned it. So, but uh, that's all I have about all about Rod Serling and his crazy ass life. So we had actually gone to CBS and looked at their top ten Twilight Zone episodes. Which, incidentally, for those of you who are currently in uh, stay at home like we are, CBS actually has extended their offer to sixty days free. If you what? Yep, they're doing sixty days free now. So sixty is more than thirty. Right. Very good, Patrick. Exactly. Thank you. That's why he's on the show. But yeah, so if you guys are interested, it did get extended. So That's what she said. <laughs> Not for you. Just to let you know, because this guy had led such a life, he wasn't going out anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what killed him? I hope it wasn't like slip, slipping in the kitchen or something. Oh, Rod Serling was said to have smoked three to four packs of cigarettes a day. I'll do it at a time. <laughs> it's just one pack. <laughs> he, did, he didn't so much as inhale them as just dominate them. And you know, and he once looked I, at them and they withered. On one side, I'm like, dude, that's a lot of cigarettes. On the other side, I'm like, you kind of res- you, you kind of allow that. You know, you you've been through some shit. Yeah. Uh, on May 3rd, 1975, he had a minor heart, heart attack and was hospitalized. Spent two weeks in the hospital. Two weeks later, he had a second heart attack. And that forced doctors to agree that open heart surgery, though risky at the time, was required. Which he did himself. Yeah, I know, right? Ten hours later, he had a third heart attack on the operating table and died two days later at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, at 50 years old. What a dude. (laughs) I know, right? In one side, you go, oh, man, he died at 50. I'm like, oh, I'm only a couple years away from 50. Man, that's really young. And the other side, I'm like, that guy lived two 50s. Right? He did more by the time he was probably 25 than we've done. It's It's not the years, it's the mileage. I haven't jumped out of a plane on purpose. But, I mean, after, after that guy went and lived through World War II, he was like, he was like, "Fuck it, the rest is gravy." Seriously, <laughs> he's like, there were, "I should have died somewhere, anywhere along the line too." There, so the rest of my life, I do whatever the fuck I want. If I want to smoke four packs of cigarettes a day, fuck you, I will. Four yeah. to five. What the hell? Anyway, but uh, so yeah, the ten, the ten shows. I created Twilight Zone. What the fuck did you do? Shut up. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I use the same list to uh, determine which episodes to watch, actually. Before we get into this, what is your guys' experience with Twilight Zone? I mean, how, I mean, I, I hope to God, I, I'm 100% certain that this is not a, oh, I just started watching it for any of us. I'd never heard of this show until you guys brought up the topic. You brought up the topic, Pat. <sighs> <laughs> I absolutely love the Twilight Zone. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things in life. Very much like The Prisoner, it goes back to, um, this was one of my father's loves, so I grew up watching Twilight Zone with my dad. I've seen every episode at least once, and I have fond memories of most of them. Some of them, obviously, you know, there's some low spots, but for the most part, you know, I find every episode to be above average, with many of them being 
stellar. But yeah, we're going to talk about some specific ones. How about you guys? What's your experience with Twilight Zone? Mine is kind of, uh, I don't want to say the opposite, but I came to the Twilight Zone kind of late. Like, it wasn't even my first show of the type. Like, I probably started watching shows like this with uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Or the Outer Limits? Okay, well, it was Dark Side, then Outer Limits, then probably Twilight Zone. We control the horizontal. Huh. So you can't, wow. All right. Yeah, I mean, it was something that was not necessarily in syndication at the times where I was watching TV when I was younger than that. And once I already knew I liked this kind of stuff, yeah, I went back and watched it. Hmm. It's just, it's interesting. It's one of those things where, like, when you, when you, something that's been, like, a staple in your life, you find out somebody never even knew about it. It's like you guys find out, you know, about me sometimes. It's just... Yeah, I mean, probably high school for me. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Like, I knew it existed, but I'd never watched it. Hmm. I, I remember seeing reruns of it when I was a kid here and there, but never really like, you know, I was pretty young. So I was like, what is this? And I'd watch it because I'd watch pretty much anything that was on at the time. But yeah, I kind of kind of circled around, though, because I used to watch Tales from the Dark Side whenever it was on. I was there. And so, you know, I kind of doubled back to this after the fact. Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long time. Yeah, my mom introduced me to Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely buy that. Yeah, yeah, and and to a to a lesser extent, Night Gallery. Well, oh a, yeah, yeah, as a, as a um, radio serial, she used to watch this. My my mom is huge into this sort of thing. Like she would go, to, "Oh, good night, good night, mom and dad. I'm going to bed. You guys go to sleep, and there's no way I'm going to get up and." sit in the dark and watch Twilight Zone and all these other shows and freak myself the fuck out, that sort of thing. So she handed it over to me. I watched uh, Twilight Zone, God, forever. I mean, one of the things I remember in the 80s is in uh, Saturday nights, there would be Sven Gulli, who would show the black and white, he'd do his movie of the week on Saturday night, and then after that would be Star Trek, and then after that would be uh, Twilight Zone. And that was just that was just like my Saturday nights. Not a bad Saturday night. Not at all, really. I mean, it's classic classic Star Trek, Sven Gulli, Rich Coase. If you're listening, we'd love you as a guest. Just saying. <laughs> Sounds like a good night to me. Yeah, you know, I kind of grew up watching this stuff. You know, we would do the movie of the day. We'd do this Twilight Zone. We'd watch. You know, she played for me some of the old Night Gallery stuff when she would get a hold of it. That sort of thing on record, and even uh, we'd find it at the library. I was kind of doomed from the start. So to speak. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. The shows that we have on here. First one, according to CBS, is um, Eye of the Beholder. Um, a woman seen with her face bandaged has undergone a final surgery to try and make her hideous appearance more acceptable to the world. The medical staff assures her that if the operation is a failure, she will be sent away to a village of outcasts with similar deformities. But once the bandages are unwrapped, the result of the surgery is seen, and we realize, yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, she's gorgeous, that actress. <laughs> she was. Maxine Stewart is the actress that was in that. Wow, she lasted all the way to 2013. She was doing all right. Hmm. Yeah. Joel, you want to do the traditional call of spoilers? <laughs> Anyone want to call spoilers on this 1959 show? Seriously, you never know, man. When they unwrap it, of course, she's beautiful, and everybody else in the world has these pushed-up noses. The makeup effects were done by William Tuttle, who sounds like somebody who got beat up in high school a lot. 
who also created the Morlocks for the sci-fi film The Time Machine. And, you know, when you're watching it, it's it's kind of obvious as you're going, they keep emphasizing, you know, beauty and, you know, you got to, it looks and you're going to end up in this, you know, quote unquote ghetto where all the uh, horrible people are. And, but you never see any of those characters faces. You only see her bandaged face. So mm-hmm. it's nice the way they do it because they do show them at a distance or in shadow or just from the neck down. But it is a little bit obvious halfway through what's going to happen and that i will admit even though i love the twilight zone i think the biggest flaw of the twilight zone is i think it would have been much better as a tighter like 15 to 18 minutes almost every episode could have done with with some some chopping because he had to like fluff it out to make them go for a full half hour yeah yeah two 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 stories per episode yeah i think it definitely would have benefited from that because like there are certain episodes like um the one with the salesman who was trying to do a pitch for the ages, you know, there was a lot of things in there that were just, you could just tell were fluff that didn't need to be in there. The hitchhiker, same thing. Like, you know, you get the gist of the stories pretty quick. And there's a YouTube channel. I, I sent a, you guys a link to that does a, a thing called two minute twilight zone, which literally just kind of cuts out all the, the, the fluff and the, the over suspenseful scenes and everything. And gives you just like the, the, the white meat of the twilight zones. Yeah, it's kind of funny to watch them if you're a fan because you already know all this stuff, you know, it's not, and it doesn't ruin anything for you. I still say watch the the full shows. Right. But, mm. but it is kind of funny that you can literally cut it down to two minutes if you want to just get rid of all the extraneous BS. That doesn't just take away from, you know, the writing or the story or anything, but it, I mean, you can literally just boil them down to that essence. I think it's kind of funny that the ones that hold up the best are the ones that have the least amount of effect. I thought that they were much higher quality than I expected in terms of whether they held up or not. Yeah, a lot of it holds up, I think. Eye of the Beholder, written by Rod Serling and directed by Douglas Hayes. So I don't know who Douglas Hayes is. I wish I did. He's related to Gabby. No. No? Oh, Elvin? No. Ulf? Oh, yeah, actually. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) This uh, Albert Hayes, Twilight Zone. He was also part of the Virginian, Magnum P.I., Beretta, and Night Gallery. So, Rod kept him around. Yeah, excellent. So, next one we have on the list is The Hitchhiker. Again, written by Rod Serling, directed by Alvin Ganser. Alvin Ganser. This is adapted from a popular radio play by Lucille Fletcher. Hitchhiker starred Inger Stevens as a woman driving cross-country who repeatedly encounters the same ominous man hitchhiking along the road. Thanks for the ride, mister. Sorry, that's a creep show. Yeah, it's totally different. This one, another one of those, you kind of see it coming. I I showed this episode uh, to my sister. She was watching, you know, some of these episodes with me. At the end of it, she's like, oh, he's death. I was like, yeah, that's the thing about one of the things about Twilight Zone. If you don't know who the mysterious guy is, if you guess death, you're not going to be wrong a lot. You got about a 75% chance, yeah. This one's a little less obvious, though. I mean, at at first, at least for 85% of it, I was like, okay, this is weird. What's going on? And then when she was talking to, I don't know what it was at, but at one point I was like, oh, wait. I think she might be dead. And then you think back to the line where the guy's talking about what you're doing, 65, 70 down the road, you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, you're lucky to be alive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, that is something that Sterling became known for was 
You watch the show. You think you put a whole thing in your head about how this whole thing is going. And then in the last 10 minutes, he flips the script on you and, and you've got a complete turnaround. On yeah. He Shyamalan you. <laughs> You've been Shyamalan ding dong. But yeah, so this one, as the guys were alluding to, the uh, Inger Stevens woman driving cross country actually is dead, and she is the hitchhiker is deaf. Say, hey, come on with me. You're dead. Follow me. All right. So next show that we have up here is The Invaders, written by Richard Matheson, who is known of I Am Legend fame, directed by Douglas Hayes again. In addition to with her work with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, Agnes Moorhead gained fame for her radio performance in Sorry, Wrong Number. Still vivid, simply due to her tremulous, pleading voice. Conversely, her TV performance in The Scary Tale of a Solitary Farm Woman who encounters strange miniature beings from outer space is purely visual. She doesn't say a word and doesn't have to to convey her pure terror. And it's just a well shot, well done, very tense and suspenseful moment of silence for the whole show. And I'm sure in that time, let's see, what year did that come out? 61? I'm sure everyone was like, why is she not talking? You know, and she is literally the full cast list on this show on IMDb. She, you know, she's the only person on screen for the whole episode. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's a good life. Maybe one of the more classic episodes. Yeah. Another one that we uh, see parodied by the Simpsons. Yep. And uh, also one that's sometimes known as a boy who gets his wish. Written by Rod Serling, directed by James Sheldon. Came out in 61, based on a short story by Jerome Bixby. It's a Good Life. Uh, has the most horrifying creature you could think of, a six-year-old tyke who can read your thoughts, and if you're not thinking really things that he likes, he can wish you off to the cornfield. This stars Billy Moomy as the tyke. Danger, Rob Robinson. Yeah, Cloris Leachman. Very young Cloris Leachman. Yes. John Larch, Alex Forrest. Lodge. <laughs> Don Kiefer, who's finally had it, imploring somebody to kill the child and free them from this tyranny. Last cornfield just gets more populated. It's a hell of a cornfield. Yeah, and this was redone in Twilight Zone, the movie, and scared the ever-loving shit out of me. Yeah, that was one of the better vignettes in that movie. Oh, my God. I gotta say, though, it's pretty effective here. The only time that I get a little bit like, okay, yeah, was the, the jack in the box when they cut to the guy's head and you see like his naked shoulders. I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. But otherwise, this is actually pretty effective. There was something specific I was going to say about it, and now I forgot what it was. Well, we were talking over you. I can understand how you got lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what, one of the things about this is imagine if you had amazing unlimited power but you had the whole need and want of a nine-year-old right that's freaking terrifying yeah i mean just complete and utter you know, lack of impulse control but all the power in the universe yeah which is why you guys should be glad i do not have all the power in <laughs> every morning i thank god <laughs> i wake up i check all my ex extensions and i'm like oh okay got everything all right josh didn't get world destroying powers so we're good. Yeah. Um, after we finish this, <laughs> Laura and I were talking about this episode after it was over, and I was wondering what your guys' thoughts were on this. Because they, they talk about, you know, number one, how you know supplies are low. You know, there's only so much of certain things left in the town for them to eat or drink. But they also mention make some other kind of allusions to things. So 
did the boy wish away other cities? Did he wish away all the other people other than the people that we see basically in that room? I think that's kind of the implication is that he has pretty much destroyed life as everybody knows it. Or, you know, something we kicked around a little bit. I, I don't I think Laura might have said, you know, or did he like wish them all away to another planet or something where it's just this little microcosm of a town that has a cornfield that's populated with dogs and people that are jack in the boxes and whatnot. Hmm. I never thought about like, it being its own little bubble. And why doesn't he wish for because obviously he's a kid. If they eventually they're gonna run out of things like ice cream and cake and cookies and three headed gophers, so I'm wondering why he doesn't wish for more food. Three headed you know. gophers. Yeah, he creates like a three headed gopher, and he's like, the guy's like, it's good, it's real good, you did good, and then he he's like, I'm tired of playing with it, and he kills it. Yeah, he just creates little monsters. Hmm. Yep, I forgot about that. See, the thing is, this one I never saw this one quite often enough. For it to have an effect on me and rewatching it now, Billy Mooney actually had some chops as a kid. Agreed. And he not like that, you know, annoying, precocious type of child actor acted like a kid, not like a rosy faced little piece of shit. <laughs> he was believable, honestly. Right, that's what I'm saying. He was a believable kid, not like a not like a fucking uh, what's that kid's name? I'm I'm still going back to rosy faced piece of shit. <laughs> My nickname in college. There are some child actors that I absolutely hate. The kid from the from the Elf movies, Haley Joel Osment. Shut up, Spencer Breslin. Spencer Breslin, John Favreau, and, and, <laughs> and, and Margaret, and Margaret. Spencer Breslin. I hate this piece of shit. Yeah, we know. Wow. Yeah, it's a weird, a weird island to uh, stand on, man. But um, well, he's an adult now, so I can just come out and say it. But oh, okay. So you've been, you've been holding on for this for like forty five years. <laughs> No, he talks about it pretty often, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is not the first time this has come up. I will tell you 100%, I will watch this a thousand times before I'll watch the damn one in the movie again. Because that fucking rabbit. Oh, right? Yeah. Seriously. I mean, we talked about the rabbit in the Fear Show, and that rabbit, I mean, I, I watched the just bopping around on YouTube. Oh, yeah, remember this one? It's a good life. Watch that. Oh, it pops up. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. God damn, that rabbit still <laughs> scares the shit out of me. It, I don't know if it's me or if it's the rabbit, but I'm blaming it on the rabbit. Josh, you got anything on this one? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then we're going to move on You're to the lone. bad man. There you go. <laughs> they don't call him the best color man in the business for nothing, folks. Jeez. <laughs> Lonely, written by Rod Serling, directed by Jack Smeet. Smite? 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 Jack Warden played Corey, a convict-sentenced solitary life on an asteroid millions of miles from Earth. When the crew of the yearly supply ship leaves him a special package, a lifelike robot named Gene Marsh. Uh, though initially contemptuous of the mechanical creature, appears to only mimic the emotions of a woman, Corey and Alicia develop a relationship that predates even the movie Her by several decades. <laughs> this is one where... We were watching this, and I was really enjoyed. I'm like, wow, this is good. And then when I'm like, they're going to show up again, and he's going to stay behind with her and live the convict life until he dies. But then they show up, and (laughs) they come over, and they shoot her in the fucking face. 
And then he's like, all right, time to go. I'm like, holy shit, I just shot their fucker in the face. And he went through the five stages of grief real fast. Real quick. He's like, all right, let's go. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, she's a robot, but you start to care about her, you know, just like he does. Yeah. He just he just turns that switch real quick, like oh well, she's a fucking robot. Whatever, let's go. Oh no, I've got I've got oh man, I have such a wait. I can get off the planet. Out. <laughs> he shot. Yeah, I mean, her. what's he gonna do? Is he gonna argue? True. <laughs> just shot her in the face, <laughs> and they can leave him. Hey, don't do that. <laughs> oh, it was it was it was pretty harsh though, because I was not expecting it, and it it caught me a little off guard, in a good way. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things is with uh, Sterling's writing is that you're like, oh, okay, I, oh, man, I totally know where this story is going to go. He's going to stick around, and he shot her in the face. Didn't see that. <laughs> that was not not on the list. What did you see in World War II, Rod? <laughs> I know, right? Bunch of fucking robots. That's what he was imagining <laughs> as he was shooting people. Exactly. All right. So next one up, bleep blort, motherfucker. <laughs> Next up we have is Our Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, written by Rod Serling, directed by Ron Winston. I'll give you a big tip off on this one. Man is the enemy. Man is the monster. Maple Street is another bucolic tree-lined setting until the town's lights and power go out. Strange electrical outbursts fuel panic, fear, and recrimination among the street's residents. Talk of alien invasion, first deemed crackpots, and now take on urgency in the darkness as neighbor turns against neighbor. Man is man's greatest enemy. I mean, I, I know this is one of the top episodes a lot of people consider this, but I don't really care for this one. I think it's ham-fisted. It's a little bit uh, hokey. It, you know, the, the people tur- I, This is one of those situations where I think this, should, it, this particular show could have benefited for, from a longer run. Yeah. If it, you know, if it had gone like 45 minutes instead of 22 or whatever. But, I, you know. I don't know. I, I agree. I, I kind of feel like it was boring, even though it was short. And maybe it's just because I've seen the same things, see, same themes done elsewhere better. Yeah, for sure, and that may be what it is too. Because I mean, it's it's not it's one of my one of the most popular ones, but it's one of my least favorite. I don't like the ending either. I mean, in the end, it's like oh, the the Martians are up there doing whatever just to fuck with them. So their plan to take over the world is they're literally going to land and do that on every fucking street in the entire planet, and that's how they're going to take over the planet. That's just bad. That's like bad strate- strategic planetary takeover. I'm with you. Just shoot him in the face. Yeah. So uh, I just don't like this episode for a lot of reasons. I think the concept is good, and like like Josh said, it's been done better a lot of other ways. But I think it might have been better if it, they they'd have been able to do a slow build up because it, they went to ten like immediately. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on this one, Pat. I think this may be one where I think they should have gotten an hour on it. They, it's not one of those where you turn the heat onto high. You think it's one of those where you slowly raise it little by little and you get the viewer questioning motives and you get the viewer questioning versus, oh yeah, they're all going to turn on each other because man is an animal. Right. That's, and that's one of the things is watching. I like, I watch these with my kids and especially with the next one coming up, the kids were like, really dad? Like, you got to understand, the year this came out, this was the reason you guys don't really appreciate this is because you have seen it done multiple times before, after this. But this is the one that broke the ground first. So moving on to the next one, which is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which I think is another one of the placards that show up in your head when you think Twilight Zone. 
Yeah. Uh, this stars a very young pre-Star Trek William Shatner. Uh, he plays an airline passenger who just recovered from a nervous breakdown, who is convinced that he has spotted bizarre creature tearing apart the engine of the plane. Uh, it's anchored by a man desperate to prove himself that he is not going crazy. It's weird in this one because the acting is actually better than I expect out of Shatner. But holy crap, that creature design did not age well. No. Oh, I just want to toss this in that this was actually directed by Richard Donner. Of the Donner Party? Yes, of the Donner Party, Pat. He yeah. came back and he was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm here to direct Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Anybody got a toothpick? <laughs> I'm hungry. Yeah, no, Richard the... Donner of Goonies fame. Yeah, the monster definitely does not hold up. I mean, it, look, it looks like a guy in an ape costume, honestly. Other than that, it's a, it's a great episode. It really is. Man, the face is fine. It's just the rest of it is like giant teddy bear. Yeah. Yeah, and then when he's kneeling and he's trying to, he's like playing in the engine, and you see that he's wearing chucks because they didn't think of putting like actual feet on the bottom of it. He's got like <laughs> gym shoes. <laughs> I never noticed that. I'm, you never noticed that? Go back and watch I'm, it, man. I'm, Definitely gonna go back and watch that because uh, that like like Sophie was sitting there watching him and he's kneel the monster's kneeling down like trying to pry open the engine and all that and she's like is he wearing chucks because his feet, <laughs> feet don't look like that oh, <laughs> he's wearing chucks that might so, have to look at it that's funny again in 1963 this must have been some intense shit because and this is also where flying wasn't like a commute for us nowadays 63 flying was still a thing. Well, yeah, and uh, between him lighting the cigarette and going for the guy's gun on the plane, I was like, wow, okay, yeah, <laughs> things have changed. Yeah, and, and him going for the gun was so Shatner-esque, too, where he, where he comes over and he's got, like, a matchbook, and he kind of, like, flings it to the ground. Oh, no, I've dropped my matches to light my cigarette on this compressed right. airplane. So casually. In all honesty, though, this is a great episode. It has a lot of it of what I love about the Twilight Zone, including the ambiguous ending, where you're like, check it out. If somebody would just go up on top of the plane, they would see that somebody tried to dug, dig in there and wait, it doesn't look like anybody's going to go up there. You know, they're going to send this guy to the loony bin and no one's ever going to find out about this. And poor Kirk is going to wind up in a straitjacket. Yep. I mean, he was already kind of crazy anyway. Well, had some sort of breakdown, but. And there was a lot of fucking pill popping on this plane, too. Right. They're just like, Captain, do you have something for him? Oh, yeah, sure. Here you go. Yeah, hang on. Let me go into my belt here. I have an assortment of pills. I've got my flying pills. It was a 50s, baby. I know, right? And then Shatner keeps that pill tucked in the side of his cheek for how long? You'd think eventually it would have started to dissolve, but. He would. All right, moving on. Time Enough at Last, written by Rod Serling, directed by John Bram, came out in 1959. Probably the number one episode that everybody remembers when you see Twilight Zone. Burgess Meredith has a bookworm who would much rather escape into the worlds of Charles Dickens, Shaw, and Shakespeare than deal with bank customers and a hen-pecking wife. He's a bibliophile that all he wants to do is read. Uh, he hides out in the bank's vault to read during a lunch break. And wouldn't you know it, a nuclear bomb drops <sighs> and destroys everything, except for a huge stack of books, leaving him alone in a city with all of his literary classics. And then he drops his glasses. It's a great episode. 
Burgess Meredith is amazing. And by the end of it, you feel so bad for him. I felt bad for him from the beginning. <laughs> well, yeah, he wasn't exactly living a life of luxury in the beginning either. But uh, his wife was a total bitch. Yeah, what kind of woman's like, I don't want you reading. Stop bettering yourself. Right. And draws yeah. in his books, takes the time to go through every single page and ruin it. I can I can understand maybe you you're like when she said you know I won't I won't have a husband who doesn't enjoy the art of conversation I could get that but like to just completely forbid reading and destroy books but it's this newspaper how are you going on about current events <laughs> it's a little it's a little psycho I mean a little bit a little bit yeah now I just uh, something that bothered me about this episode aside from his wife being a total b was you know okay the bomb drops he goes outside figures out nobody's there realizes he's got food got a place to sleep he's going to be okay. But within roughly 12 hours time, he's like, time to kill myself. I'm done. Yep. I'm like, yep. wait, what D- did more time pass? Did something happen or was he already suicidal? What just happened? And, and, and this could have been another one of those that I think might've benefited from a little bit longer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A little bit more time to tell the story. Cause I would have found it more interesting to kind of see the build up and maybe see him. You see him start losing his mind or something. Because, I mean, and let's be honest, this guy would have immediately gone to the library. Would have been his first thing. Like he, when he, As soon as he realized he was alone, he's like, oh, see if there's any books. Yeah, yeah, they made such a point about him. Like, I wish I had time to read. I wish I had more time. I wish I had more. And then he's got it. And then he's like, oh, I guess time to just lay around and not do anything. And you, you could have spent more time. They could have spent more time showing him, like, I don't know. Trying to get another pair of glasses and finding out, you know, oh, nobody has my prescription, just laying around, I'm screwed there. Mm-hmm. You know, could have been all kinds of things you could do with, could do with that. Yeah. Uh, how do they think glasses work? I mean, I am extremely nearsighted, but if I lose my glasses, I put the book closer. We've seen it. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I usually take off my glasses to read, period. I can't read without my glasses anymore. My my eyes have adjusted so much to the glasses that I can't read without them. Okay, yeah, here. so that's that's not that's not universal. Then you can't just no. put the book closer. Okay, right. No, I mean I, I have astigmatism on top of you know vision is, other vision issues. So my vision is crap on its own. Yeah, my eyes gave up the ghost as soon as I got glasses. They're like, okay, we don't have to try to adjust anymore. We're done. It's still kind of heart wrenching, regardless of all that. You know, just from the fact that. He's stacked all the books. He's like, it's January and February, and there won't be any bad weather to ruin all these books if I leave them outside. Here's May. Here's March. You know, and then classic. Yep. So it's it's still sad, but it's iconic, as we said. Yeah. No. This was this was uh, the first one that we actually sat down to watch when I went through the list. I'm like, that one sounds interesting. Plus, Burgess Meredith can't go wrong. See, I remember this one, but I haven't seen it recently. Um, basically, because I started at the beginning. Rather than going through the top ten. In retrospect, I kind of wish I would have watched the the pilot or whatever the very first episode was. But Oh, Last Man on Earth? Yeah. I, I strictly stuck with the, the ten because I wanted to hit kind of the highest point since I don't even know which episode I'd seen other than maybe the Billy Moomy one. That I, dropped I mean, I recommend Last Man on Earth, even though it's like you can see how it's coming just because it's a strong performance. This is another one where the actor is mostly alone throughout the whole thing. A guy's just going through a town, and no matter where he goes, there's no other people. And, like, there's so many signs that somebody was there recently. Yeah, and he feels like he's being watched the whole time. 
Yeah, it's a strong performance for someone who has nobody to play off of. It's just mm-hmm. a single actor and these empty sets. I enjoyed that one quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I agree with you. I did watch two episodes that aren't on the list here, so I might as well get them out of the way real quick. I watched Long Distance Call and Living Doll. Long Distance Call is the one where Billy Moomy's back again when they were shooting on video. That was kind of disconcerting. His grandmother dies. They had a weird, like, super close relationship, and she's talking to him on his toy telephone. And she's telling him to kill himself so that she can be together with him. Which was effective and creepy, but the video was a little weird. And the Living Doll, that's a Takitina one, Patrick, that mm-hmm. we were talking about. Because I can't do a Twilight Zone episode and not watch that episode. I'm but going to kill you. You get to see, you know, uh, the, uh, a younger Telly Savalas be a complete dick and then get his just desserts with that doll. Plus, it's creepy. You know, predates Chucky and uh, Fats and Annabelle and all the other killer dolls. 22. Um Written by Rod Serling, directed by Jack Smite, came out in 61. This is another one of those mental ones. This is another one of those where, like Josh said earlier, the best ones are the ones where you don't really see the uh, uncanny valley of the monster on the wing. Uh, Though this one, a budget shortfall, led to six episodes being recorded on videotape rather than film. So it kind of changed the look of it, while those episodes being ended up being more stage-bound than most, with no backlot shooting. The claustrophobia of filming strictly on a set greatly aided this small tale of a woman who repeatedly dreams that she walks down a long, dark corridor to the morgue, where she's greeted by a nurse who says, Room for one more, honey. It's another one of those mental ones, another one of those psychological, what's happening with the, you know, where you kind of see the sign at the end of the street coming. Another good episode. Yeah, and uh, Joel talked about one of the other videotape uh, episodes, and I was looking at how the making of the show changed because uh, they had to do multiple cameras and do hard cuts with the cameras and kind of had to work around that technical limitation. And it, it shows if you watch those second season episodes, they're a little bit more disjointed. The filmmaking just in general is not as good. And plus, when Rod Serling walks around the corner to give his little narration, it's like, what the fuck's he doing in their house? Why, why is he just hanging <laughs> yeah. out here? It doesn't feel as natural. I always thought it was kind of cool, though. Just the idea that suddenly the the narrator's like the DM. He needs to be anywhere. But it, in, in the film versions, it feels more natural. Like, the way they do it, it feels it doesn't feel weird. But in the video versions, where they're doing the live stuff, it's like, wait, what? I think I get it where Joel's coming from, because like you even see that in the uh, remake, which we're going to talk about in the second half, is that there'll be a completely normal scene and then they'll just cut over and Jordan Peele is sitting there in his suit in an area where he clearly does not belong. But it feels more natural than there's just something about the way the videotape was shot where he just feels like he's sitting in the middle of a set on a play. Huh. I I never got that feeling. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Finally, the last one we have is called Walking Distance, uh, written by Rod Serling, directed by Robert Stevens. Came out in 59, Gig Young, which is a great name. Gave a performance as Martin Sloan, a 36-year-old ad man tired of his life, who finds himself transported to the hometown of his boyhood. There he not only basks in the remembered pleasures of his carousel rides and chocolate sodas with three scoops, but encounters himself as a child and his parents who think he's insane. 
Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. You know what I think is interesting is that they're like Martin Sloan, a man tired of his life at 36 years old. Like, dude, 36. And it's funny you bring that up because in the whole first series, almost every guy is 36. Yeah. Huh. I never really thought about that. Yeah. I noticed that the third time it happened in the first season that, yeah, he, he always specifically 36. I wonder if there's something behind that, like intentional or if that's subconscious. I maybe I dig a little bit more into his background, what, what ages he was he was when all this stuff happened. But I mean, maybe it's just a, an easy age to make people because they there's not really a lot you can or can't do legally at that age. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's easy, right? I don't know. I'm just talking out of my ass now. Well, let's see. This was 59. You said what was the series? Yeah, when it started. And Rod Serling was born in 19 1932. He was 35 when the show started. He was born in 1924, in December 25th. So actually, he would have been 36. Yeah, maybe that's why it was the age he was when the show got picked up. That's interesting. So yeah, he just p- literally picked his own age. Yeah. So, yeah, December 25th, 1924. They say the, right. They they say right what you know. <laughs> well, I know what's like being a 36 year old man. So let's let's go with that. I yeah. remember when I had my talking Tina doll, and I remember when I you know, <laughs> murdered all those people and turned them into Jack in the Box. I remember when I remember- my friend got decapitated by a, by a supply crate. <laughs> what episode is that? Dude. I mean, that that would be the equivalent of, like, a box of games hitting Pat in the head and decapitating him at Gen Con. Uh, I mean, Vic Morrow wished that he hadn't gone back <laughs> to that. <laughs> I, when, when decapitation came up, I was like, oh, somebody say it <laughs> yeah i had to go for it oh man you know uh, what i found out by doing research for this show um you know who you know who his daughter is vic morrow jennifer jason lee no shit no shit i did not know that huh i think that's a good way to take us out all right so uh twilight zone the original series we are, are going to come back in a little bit chat for a brief moment about some remakes and then jump into the 2020 twilight zone that is out right now all right so multiple times they have come back and said i think we should do twilight zone again uh in 1985 there was a revival for the series it ran for two seasons before finally ending one of the cool things let's see where did it go on my list twilight zone episodes 1985 to 1988 they had 24 episodes first season 11 and then 30 a large believe it, a large chunk of these directed by wes craven huh yeah wes craven and then robert downey senior oh he's a nut job man he did one called children's zoo I don't know if you remember that one. That was kind of kind of trippy. I remember watching this this uh, this one, but there's some uh, directed by Joe Dante, and uh, uh, where was the other one? Uh, da, 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 da. Who's the guy from La Bamba? Richie Valens. Yes, that's Richie. <laughs> it was directed by Richie Valens. <laughs> well, I no. mean, technically, I'm not wrong. <laughs> no, no, uh, not uh, not Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, God bless it, Lou Goldlos Lobos. Los Lobos. Yeah, let's just go with that. Los Lobos. (laughs) 
I actually saw them recently. I hear they're they're looking old. (laughs) They're looking pretty old. I hear they can still do it, though. You know, so I mean, they're still touring. So good on them, I guess. Anyway, a lot of different directors on this one. The one episode I recall from this one is the one where the kid has to take the um, the intelligence test. Do you remember that one? I don't think I've seen any of these episodes, to be honest. With oh, man. You're alone on this, Mike. Really? There was yeah. one. I mean, there's one. Oh, and writers, uh, a bunch of them. The teleplay was done by R.R. R. Martin. Oh, nice. Yeah. The one that I remember that really stuck out for me on this one is where a kid, the, the parents are like, oh, you know, you remember you're taking your test today and everybody has to take this test when you turn 13. And it seems like the parents are really worried because he's like taking like an ACT test. And he goes to go take it, and they say, hey, before you take this test, just take this vial. Oh, drink it. Oh, what is it? Oh, it's a vial. That stuff will make sure that you tell the truth. And at the end of it, the parents get a voicemail back from the government that says that he scored too high in the intelligence test and had to be put down for the betterment of society. Thank God they don't know that. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, that one. And then we at that obviously point. obviously do not have that. No. And at that point, I was like, don't even try in school. Apparently, you try in school, they kill you. And look what that got me. That's the message. Mm-hmm. Never try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on to the 2019 series. Yes, sir. 2019. This one is uh, done by Simon Kinberg, Jordan Peele, and Marco Ramirez. Simon Kinsberg, known for his work on the X-Men franchise, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Jordan Peele is Jordan Peele. Marco Ramirez is another one of the writers on this one, based off the original series. So uh, initially it was announced that Brian Singer had finalized a deal to develop, produce, and uh, direct the third revival of Twilight Zone. But eventually that broke down and wound up going to Jordan. So we're just kind of like, uh, there's 10 episodes in this one, 10 episodes in the first one. We're just kind of skate through them and see where we stand on each of them. So this one, first one called The Comedian, directed by Owen Harris and written by Alan Rubens, is the first one. Uh, Samir Wasan meets legendary comic J.C. Wheeler, who uh, tells him to, hey, you know what? Let loose with some of your personal bits into the act. Uh, and he does. And little by little, he discovers that who he talks about disappears in real life. This one was really good. Yeah, I, I love the Tracy Morgan, J.C. Wheeler character because he puts it out there. He's like, when when you give of yourself, it's not yours anymore. It's not there. It's out there. Mm-hmm. It's theirs. Yeah. yeah, I've always been a fan of Kumail Nanjiani. Like I've talked about him multiple times on the show. So I was all in. I actually saw this one a couple days after it released. Oh, well, and you know something, Tracy Morgan in that role, which I wasn't sure. When I saw it after after it was over, I'm like, was he like the devil or something? But I was never a Tracy Morgan fan until I watched uh, his series, The Last OG, and then now I started watching Thirty Rock, and I've come around to be a fan of his. He was really good in this, like him playing kind of more, even though he was supposed to be a comedian, kind of a legendary comedian. He was playing it very straight, and I mean, he was kind of sinister. He had this mixture of incredibly sad and vaguely sinister. Yeah, I, I really like this portrayal in this. This kind of reminded me. It, now, granted, these type of shows I have watched my whole life re- initially reminded me of one where 
um, a comedian dies and winds up doing stand up in hell, but instead to make the crowd laugh, he has to tell every awful thing he's ever done in his, in his life. That that's a show. One of the ones from the ninety five or something. Now, I don't know if it's one from the eighties or one. It's got it, it is in the eighties. Remember watching it in the eighties, but it was either the Outer Limits reboot or maybe it was an Amazing Stories, which. It was another one of those. Initially, I thought that's where this one was going, where he has to like confess his sins to the crowd to get them to laugh, that sort of thing. But it was a nice little twist on it. And I think the character arc of Samir, when he realized that he was like, you know, there's some real assholes that need to be taken out of this life. When he's up there and he's talking about the other comedian who hit the bus stop and killed the mother and the daughter. And he's like, I saved two life, two lives by killing this guy. He went, he went from, from sheepish to confident to cocky to narcissistically arrogant and malicious. And mm-hmm. and then he finally redeemed himself by the end. Yeah, in the middle, I think it started getting shades of Death Note. Yeah, for sure. I'm exactly what I was thinking about in that one. Well, because he, he literally kind of talked about it as being like a superpower where, you know, he could actually do some good and still get what he wants. So he's like, you know, I'm cheating the system. But as you realize over time going to be a reckoning or you're going to have to start digging into your, your own stash. Uh, otherwise, you know, the system comes collecting is what the problem is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, w- I was really impressed with this. It was a good way to start out the series. And can we just, just real quick, just take a moment and just talk about how freaking amazing Jordan Peele is. <laughs> right. Treasure man. Uh, I, I, every time I just started watching key and peel with Laura, cause I've only seen certain bits and I just started watching it this week. Freaking hilarious. I mean, I was a fan of his without ever even watching that, but the guy's talented here. Here's the thing that I have with, with the, the reboot. I really wish there was a way for me to determine what peels, political stance and beliefs were in this one. He seems in in all of these, he seems really ham fisted compared to the original twilight zone. I'm not sure I agree at all. Okay. I think that quite a few of the original twilight zones were a, a product of their time and were equally a bit too far on the nose like a lot of TV of their time, like uh, old Star Trek, even maybe it seems that way just because it is a product of its time and uh, people's politics. If they're out there, I, I don't I, I think that people immediately react negative to entertainment that includes a strong political stance, which when we get to the third episode, I'll dig into that with you a little more. All right. So move on. Nightmare at 30,000 feet. This one directed by Greg Yatanis. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, story by Simon Kinsberg. Uh, this one, Justin Sanderson boards Northern Gold Star Airlines flight 1015 and then discovers a MP3 player which has a podcast. There's a little bit of a twist. Instead of a monster on the wing, there's a podcast narrating what's going on in the plane as he flies. Yeah, I uh, I was all in on this one because I had wondered if they were just going to do CGI for a new monster. And uh, they have big shoes to fill. This is the third time this concept has been executed. H- having sort of the same thing where he couldn't look away. 
you look at the original and you're like, well, if he thinks he's going crazy, why doesn't he just not look out the window? It's a sort of the same thing with him in the podcast. And the funny thing is, is if he did, if he just turned off the podcast, everything would have been okay. And did you guys notice at the end, and I don't know if we're calling spoilers on the new series, but at the end, uh, when he's laying on the beach, the the monster from the original Twilight Zone was washed up on the shore. Yes. The little toy of it. <laughs> that was a nice nod. Yeah, great cast on this one. I've always liked Adam Scott. And then you've got Nicholas Leia, who was the uh, Crycheck from the X-Files. Yep. He's the pilot. I thought it, I thought it was a nice a nice take on it. You still got kind of the same feeling that you had in the original, but without the the silly looking monster suit. And I thought, you know, again, kind of to make it more modern, doing the whole twist with it being a podcast, again, kind of is of its time. But I was like, how are they going to stretch this out? You know, because it was twice as long as the original, and I thought they did a good job. They establish in the opening moments that this dude is incredibly nice and. You know where his character's politics are, where he his whole thing is be civil to each other. It doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your religion. But then the actions he takes to try to save everyone make him look like this horrific asshole. And it just descends further and further. And then it leads up to the ending. Which felt a little bit zombie apocalypse if you know what I mean. Like. I thought the actions of the other passengers was a little extreme, but it, it tied in with, you know, the, the opening of the film and it kind of how that character set up. And I also the goal, it was Northern gold star, which was the name of the, the airline in the original as well that uh, Shatner was on. There were a lot of uh, deep cut Easter eggs in this, like individual names of the pilot and Patrick. What did you see this one? No. Oh, okay. That's why I'm, 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 uh, spoiler alert for the show. Uh, I only got to see the very first episode. Oh no. I, I'm, I'm very disappointed. I had, I had planned on watching all of them, at least the first season and my plans got blown up by life. So I well, only got to watch the first one. I highly recommend when you have a chance. I 100% um, I'm going to watch all of them because just based on that first episode, I'm in. Yeah. You, you should really definitely dig in. Don't worry about spoilers for any, for me or anything. I don't care. I'm going to watch them anyway. I don't give I'm, a shit. So. I'm trying to be careful. Don't worry about it. Seriously. I don't I don't give a shit about spoilers. I'll watch stuff anyway. I watch the same stuff over and over again. I've watched The Office 18 times. I don't care. <laughs> Ditto. All right. So Replay is the next one. Episode three. Directed by Gerald McMurray. And then uh, written by Selwyn Seifu Hins. Uh, at a roadside diner with a college-bound son, Dorian, Nina Harrison discovers that the family camcorder can turn back time if she hits the rewind button. She's the only one aware of it. And uh, they encounter Lasky, a racist state trooper who continually pulls them over for speeding before coming violent with them and eventually evolving the death of her son. This, uh, in my opinion, of the ones that I watched was probably my favorite. Just the whole concept of being able to rewind time is a, a fun concept to play with. But this also was an episode where, like Mike was saying, where I felt like at the end of it, it got a little ham-fisted with the message. You know, you, you get the message with the cop and how, you know, there's a, there's a fixed point in time that you can't change. So, you know, either either deal with it or, you know, you keep trying to reset it. And I thought it was a nice touch how the whole thing with the lottery that she didn't play it 
as a uh yeah we're gonna make ourselves rich yeah i thought that was a really nice way to kind of make her a a more likable person because she didn't take advantage of this gift she'd been given she was strictly trying to use it to keep her son safe and get him to school but yeah at the end i was like okay i get it (laughs) you know but i still I, i i thought this was a really well done episode it was all right Again, I agree. I agree with you on the ham-fistedness of this one. You know, even to the point where she goes to try and befriend Lasky, you know, eating pie with him and that sort of thing. You know, great. White cops, bad. I mean, that's what I got from this one. I mean, it it's the message wasn't subtle. The message wasn't elegant. You know, there wasn't a subtlety where at the end you were like, oh my god, this is what they were saying. It was pounded into your face from the very beginning of it, and I think that really turned me off on this one. Well, on the ending, when he leaves the house. Yeah, and that, that siren at the very end of it before it will fade it to black. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get what he was going for. I, and I respect his decision to, you know, do that. But it, yeah, it felt a little bit kind of like on um, uh, Don't Be a Menace to South Central while drinking juice in the hood, where keep going, message! You know, it was that kind of a thing where it felt like somebody <laughs> should be screaming, message! If you didn't get it. Still loved it, though. All right, let's move on. All right. A traveler, uh, Anna Lily Emmapur. Yeah, she did uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at Midnight and Bad Batch. She's up-and-coming horror director. Okay, cool. And then uh, Glenn Morgan, writer of uh, X-Files and Final Destination movies. Alaska Police Sergeant Yuka Mongoyak arranges for her brother Jack to be pardoned at Captain Lane Pendleton's annual Christmas party, which she detests. Puts him in the cell to get him pardoned, and eventually discovers that the Traveler, a Traveler, uh, is in one of the other cells. She doesn't know where he came from. She grows suspicious of his identity, and Pendleton soon also grows suspicious when a Traveler starts revealing information that he should have no way of knowing including actions done by Mayor Matheson. Little by little, it starts getting to everybody's head, and things come to a head later on. I'm trying to say this without giving away any spoilers on this one. Not necessarily for you, Pat, but for any listeners that haven't seen it. Well, and that's the thing, is I haven't seen all of these either. So, yeah, this is another one I missed. Okay. I liked it. It had the little twist at the end. Very Twilight-esque. Very, very, very classic Twilight-esque type for this one. I liked it. I don't think it was too uh, preachy on this one, but I think that also Greg Kinnear was fantastic in this one. Yeah, he plays a good kind of sort of bad guy. Oh, this is another. This is the one with Stephen Yeun from uh, Walking Dead. Yeah. Yes, yes. He was excellent. Yeah, he was really good in it. I, I, I like this one. It had a good twist at the end of it. Joel, I think you and I are the only two that watched this one. Yeah, and, and and it's it's really well done, and I, I felt like, I won't say it's the most Twilight Zone episode out of all of them, but this one had very much that 50s feel to it with the twist at the end, and, and when they finally reveal, you know, what is going on with Stephen Yuen's character, you're like, oh yeah, this is very much like, I could see Rod Serling popping up. Yeah, it reminds me more of the uh, To Serve Man episode, with the twist at the very end of it. Do you remember that one, Joel? I don't know if I... I don't remember that one, Patrick. It's a, it's a cookbook. Oh. It's, okay. Yeah, the alien, yeah. yeah all the yeah. lines going into the ships and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So then moving on to that, we have The Wonderkind, written by uh, Richard Shepard and directed by Andrew Guest, known for Hope and Faith in 30 Rock. This stars John Cho, Jacob Tremblay, Ellison Tolman, and a very brief, still looking all right, John Larroquette. Cursing uh, like a sailor, John Larroquette. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he can do it when he needs to, man. Did this one remind anybody else of an episode of Black Mirror almost more than Twilight Zone? Not that that's yeah. a bad thing, but this one really, to me, felt like an Americanized Black Mirror episode. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like if if uh, the Twilight Zone was done through an American or Black Mirror lens or vice versa. But it's an interesting concept. And, you know, it raised a lot of questions after it was over. We were sitting there talking about it. And I was like, okay, so were his parents in on this the whole time? And he was actually, you know, this was all intentional? Or did he just turn into the the kid that he turned into at the end because of having too much power too young? But again, this one also felt very much like a Twilight Zone episode, especially with the, the last little twist of the knife, all pun intended, at the very end. It it felt like like Twilight Zone. Did turn darker at the end and lean more i mean if you if you have the median of like twilight zone on one side and black mirror on the other that needle did swing over the over the line for a little bit for to a little bit more of the dark mirror yeah and it's interesting that because i mean uh, black mirror while it it, uh, touches on the whole social media and influencer sort of careers it more focuses on the role of technology and this goes over the line talking about like the lifestyle that is created not necessarily directly uh, putting that at the feet of the technology so i guess that that would be the difference between a black mirror and a twilight zone Mm mm-hmm well, and I think the other thing with comparing the two, at least if you just take this episode out of the entire season, Black Mirror is, is a lot smarter. I, I've, I've enjoyed the episode. I think it was well done. But I think Black Mirror makes its points a lot more subtly and a lot more intelligently. I, I find it difficult to disagree with that as much as I love the uh, the remake. Like I am all in with every episode I've seen of this. Uh, but if you're forcing me to pick this or Black Mirror, I'm probably going Black Mirror. And, and again, I'm just basing it off talking about this one specific episode because it does very much have that kind of sensibility. I, I don't. I think it it felt like Netflix or cable television series versus CBS, if that makes well, sense. Well, I mean that's exactly what it is too. Right, but you know, you think about network television versus like like a Game of Thrones versus a network television version of the same show yeah you know you're gonna get kind of a, a watered down simplistic version of it and i'm not saying this is watered down or simple but it felt you know like they were having to write for a national television audience versus for sure black mirror dumps some really heavy shit on you on this one i think the i mean the the point i mean joel you kind of pointed out what the the edge they're looking for on this one is gonna be john larroquette dropping some f-bombs right well, and Black Mirror sets your expectations right off the beginning. Like, a lot of people hate the first episode, but a lot of them are just like, okay, UK Prime Minister fucking a pig on the internet. This is what you're in for. And while it's probably the worst episode of Black Mirror, like, if you get through that one, you're probably not going to be shocked by anything the rest of the series has to offer. Yeah. And if you've mm-hmm. watched the shit I've watched, the, the, that episode's not that shocking. I mean, did you just vocally say that you've watched worse than some dude fucking a pig? 
some of the movies I've seen, and yeah, and I think Pat can probably say the same thing. Well, I'm not going to openly admit to like seeing worse than bestiality. No, well, I'm not saying well or doing. You know. <laughs> All right. So next episode, <laughs> I like I like how you went. You know, just real casually, <laughs> as you will. Jesus, six degrees of freedom. Unfortunately, this is one that I missed. Uh, Jacob Verbergen. <laughs> what just happened? Jacob Verbergen. That's that's the way I see it. That's the way I'm saying it. Oh, I thought you had a stroke. I, I, I might have. You never know with these Volkswagen. names. The Volkswagen yeah. Verbergen. Verbergen. <laughs> this is directed by him and then uh, written by Heather Ann Campbell and Glenn Morgan. Jacob Verbergen. Uh, also did some stuff of the fall, London Spy, House of Cards. He did the episode Black Mirror, Men Against Fire, and The Alienist. Crew of the Bradbury, oh, nice nod, spacecraft led by Alexa Brandt decide to head off to the planet Mars after nuclear war breaks out on Earth. Crew members turn on one another despite attempts to convince them to come together in times of stress. She starts to break, and things happen. Uh, I skipped this one. This one was described to me as monsters are due on Maple Street in space. All right. I did not get a chance to see this one. It's one of the three episodes. Oh. So, all right, cool. So none of us watch this one. Move it on. Number seven. Who's seen this one? I'm just going to glit this out of the, out of the. I did not see this one. Either. I did not see this one. Uh, no, not me either. All right, move it on. Point of origin. <laughs> Wait, that's the only other one I saw. That's the only. Are you shitting me? He's I fucking am. with you. That's the Tosa Farmiga episode. Uh, that's about all I know about it. All right, moving on. Point of origin. Who saw this one? Nope. 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 All I right. Let's. I, I, let's just skip over and just go straight to Blue Scorpion. Hell's yes. Outside of the don't worship, you know, don't worship the things that you own and guns are bad. That was your takeaway. No, no, no. I said outside of that. Oh, outside I was, was going to say, because yeah. I, I don't think that this was really even about, it was definitely more about personification of objects and fetishizing things, hoping that your things are going to save your life than making any statement on guns or gun violence. No, no. I mean, that is that is the very, very outer shell of the God stopper on this one. Animism. Gun, I mean, yeah, the very animism. Gods are, I mean, guns are bad. It's a very, like on the very thin shell on the outside of this written or directed. Directed by Craig William. McEnany. Yeah. Directed by, I forget which column is, which directed by this dude also did. What else he do? He did channel zero. He did some, Oh, he did hmm. episodes of castle rock feature films. He did the boy. Ugh, well, not so sure. About that one, but <laughs> Blue Scorpion, depressed anthropology professor Jeff Stork, played by Chris O'Dowd, is about to be, divorce his wife despite his pleas for counseling. On top of that, his father has apparently committed suicide with a gun that he did not know that he even owned. Uh, discovers the gun. Apparently, it's called the Blue Scorpion and comes to him with a bullet with his own name on it. Yeah, and there's something funky with the suicide note, too. I got the distinct impression when he saw the suicide note that it was not his father's handwriting. Well, and we've still been talking about it. I love you more than him. Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about the gun? Is he talking about his kid? Is he, There's so much. At one point, he says, am I you or am I him? Yeah. Yeah. We've had a lot of discussion about this post-watching. I, I also am glad we didn't go too much further into the 
little uh, summary here because the summary gets basic facts of the episode wrong. This one was really, really good. Like Chris O'Dowd, I mean, on his own, enjoyable to watch and anything he does. Regardless. Oh, yeah. But then you take this whole, I, I literally had no idea where it was going. And when that gun goes off for the first time, it's it's unsettling. Mm-hmm. They want you to understand that this gun is like a living thing. It has its own desires. It has its own alien motivations and it's got its own fears. And yeah, there is a little bit of like the first time he finally gets back any power in his life is when he's at the range firing it. You do get a little bit into an American gun culture for a couple seconds there, but it's a catalyst for him developing this personal relationship with this object that shows that it loves him back. Mm-hmm. That and there is a, a relationship between the item and himself that's being... And it's so created. weird. Yeah. yeah. I love this episode. It's it's the best so, part of the whole series for yeah. me. And outside of Chris O'Dowd and the plot itself, and the, the gun was completely sweet. Hey, Jeff, did you think anything else about this one? Oh. All right. Thanks, Why are you Josh. Talking to Chris God, God, God. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that, and, and then more weirdness. And I was trying to allude into that one. Hap starts happening to Chris O'Dowd's characters. He starts meeting more and more people by the name of Jeff. Like he's like literally every day he meets somebody new that has his name and which is also the name on the bullet. Yeah, you get the idea that there's a bullet with your name on it. And he very quickly buys into the idea that, hey, this bullet can only go, it belongs to someone named Jeff. Every day he's meeting at least one and sometimes dozens of people named Jeff. It's like, am I supposed to commit suicide with this? Am I supposed to kill somebody with this? He doesn't know. And that's the thing is that the people that he's meeting range from just like the dude at the gun counter, a guy named Jeff versus his wife's divorce lawyer who is named Jeff one guy who's completely arbitrary and, and no harm done to a dude and one scene i was really expecting jeff jeff the lawyer to get that bullet and that's just it especially by the end of the episode you're like you're wondering is the bullet specifically for the owner or is it for his choice of somebody else with that same name cuz he's free to hold on to the gun as long as he wants essentially but at some point, in order for him to pass it on to somebody else, somebody as long as he's named Jeff, get... it's cool. Yep. As, yeah. As long as somebody that gets the bullet is named Jeff, then it can transfer ownership. Everything. And everything's cool at that point. There's a well, lot if he of disrespects the gun. If he makes it, if he makes it scared, I think the episode ends differently. But like, it's cool and kind of a twist to see one of these types of shows where instead of like fighting against the obvious weirdness the whole time, it's like, well, this is ridiculous. So I'm going to fight against it despite all evidence right in my face. Chris O'Dowd's character buys in. He's like, okay, this is fucked up. It's weird. I can't explain it to anybody, but I believe it right Right. away. Now, and you also notice after after the shooting where he kills Jeff in the street, that after that, they take the gun from him as evidence and his life completely turns around. And there's a long period of time between him losing the scorpion and then getting it back where he has done a whole 180 on his life. Yes, the gun gave him what was promised. He treated the gun right and it uh, solved all of his problems. At the cost of a life of Jeff. 
Does it does it answer the question? What I mean, I'm, I, I originally thought of this as a smart ass question, but now I realize I want a real answer to this. What if he runs into somebody whose name is Jeff, but it's spelled with a G? Does it matter? Did they address that at all? They don't address it, but uh, they do show that the bullet with the name on it, it's heavily shown that whoever's the possessor of the gun can see the name on the bullet, but nobody else can. Yeah. Uh, okay. But he and, sees it as J-E-F-F. And at the end, with the way that it the twist happens, it makes me wonder then, you know, I, it, it made me wonder what was going to happen after that. Like, I wanted to continue the journey of the blue scorpion to see where it went. I'm not sure I want to considering the, uh, the Jordan Peele statement at the end, I think where it goes immediately after the end, uh, end of the episode is nowhere good. Well, but if, at least in the short term, what if their step, his stepdad's name is Jeff or uh, Kyle. Yeah. But the the ending crawl, like I watched this only a couple of hours ago. The ending crawl specifically talks about a tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I think it definitely goes in a place where y- you wouldn't be happy you continued watching and probably okay. fairly shortly. I missed that. I think then I must have caught it, not caught it. Then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really. It's only fresh in my mind because this was the last one I watched and it was uh, just a couple hours before the show. If you're going to watch this, I think Blue Scorpion is the thumbs up one across the board for all of us in this because Chris O'Dowd and great plot. But moving on to number 10. Blurry Man's directed by Simon Kinberg and uh, written by Alex Rubens. This one, after rewriting the open narration, it's kind of meta meta for Twilight Zone episode starring Seth Rogen and Betty Gabriel for the uh, show. Screenwriter and Twilight Zone fan Sophie Gelson discovers that uh, she's got to rewrite some stuff for Jordan to, to say. And the mysterious blurry figure starts appearing in the background of several scenes. This one's going to be a little hard to talk about without giving away spoilers. I, um, I specifically didn't watch this one because I was told that you pretty much have to have seen all the others before you watch this one. You do. This is one that you have. This is like you, you could the 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 seals with a bow at the end of the season. The thing about this episode, again, without divulging the two major plot points, by the end of the episode you're gonna you're gonna go okay wait now i need to rewatch this mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and i unfortunately I, I did read enough of the show notes that one of the big things has been spoiled for me but i won't spoil it for anyone else i like this episode because it number one it breaks format pretty hard and the way it does it is is very smart and zazzy beats i just i love zazzy it's everything i've seen her and she's just a new favorite of mine and to see her in this and, and taking the lead made me very happy. But the fact, you know, you start out and you're like, okay, Seth Rogen, this girl, screenwriter, end of the world. You're like, cool, okay, let's see where this goes. And then Jordan Peele starts doing his thing. And you're like, okay, episode starting. And then he's like, cut. And we're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and you realize cool. you're watching the Twilight Zone, making the Twilight Zone. And can we just have a brief call out to Jason Priestley on this one? Did not expect to see him standing there. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out, and incidentally, in I think it's in this episode in the background, you see um, not, um, all the time in the world on one of the TV. Right. Burgess Meredith episode. And we had talked about that, where there was little nods of the previous episodes in this one. In fact, with uh, Replay, if you notice in the very beginning, 
it's like in the like god like in the first two minutes they pass over in the diner where one of the one of the machines in the booths has a little uh devil's head on the top of it oh yeah you're right yeah I mean, there there's little nods to to other shows through the whole thing, but this one, I mean, like I said, this is going to be one that you watch this and then you go back and like, oh crap! I wish it's almost like when you're watch you watch Fringe, and then you go you have wind up having to go back and find all the observers and all the episodes because you're like, oh man, I they're literally in every single episode of it. It's one of those type of things where you go back and rewatch it to catch the thing that you didn't even know that you were supposed to notice. Well, and I. I will tell you just because I went back and I watched some episodes after this one. Cause I did this one like fourth or fifth episode I watched. So I was able to kind of pay attention for the ones I watched after it, but mm-hmm. I went back to the one episode they referenced in this and it pays off. Let's just say nice. Nice. All right. Well, this, this has been green light for a second season. We've got a bunch of titles and we've got a bunch of names and that sort of thing coming up for the next one, but nothing really. No plot. Solid. Ex- yeah, no plots. Though I the one. Say, real quick before we move on to talk about season two, it is incredibly impressive how many big names he got for this. I mean, every episode had a big celebrity in it. He's oh, yeah. Jordan Peele, though. He's got a lot of clout now. Yeah, he is like the hottest thing in Hollywood and for good reason. Right, but I mean, it's still exciting to see that, you know, so I'm excited to see who he's going to get in the second season. Yeah, well, I mean, the second season, he's got Marina Bakin, Bakarin, from Firefly. And the one I'm really looking at is an episode called, currently, is called A Human Face, which uh, stars Jenna Elfman of Dharma and Greg fame, but also Christopher Maloney, who is currently in my favorite show of all time right now called Happy. I'm looking to see where this one goes. Nice. Yeah, so, I mean, where are we on thumbs up, thumbs down on, on this one? For me, it's pretty obvious. It's a massive thumbs up. It's even more enthusiastic for the remake than the original, but uh, it's certainly a thumbs up for both. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we did this. I was looking forward to doing this once the remake was announced. And yeah, definitely thumbs up for the original and the, the current series as well. I know I didn't watch most of the current, but I, I already all in just based on that first episode. It was so good. And I, you know, hearing you guys talk about the rest of them, I'm definitely going to watch them. So, yeah, I'm a thumbs up on both. Yeah, I'm I'm a thumbs up on, on both of them. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with the second season. I mean, I'm looking like they've got, I mean, some of the names that are coming up on this one. Also, like there's one where Joel McHale is currently cast and Jillian Jacobs from uh, Community. Yeah, the two of them together again. Uh Oh, uh, and then, and well, no, and then Jimmy Simpson from Always Sunny. See, I, I, it oh. boggles my mind that everyone goes to Always Sunny for Jimmy Simpson. Not, not that it's not a great show and his role isn't great, but the, that's like the fourth place I think of when I think of Jimmy Simpson. Well, he's he's done a lot. Is right. he one of the McFoyle brothers? Is that yeah. the one yeah. you're talking about? Okay, yeah. yeah. When, when you go back and look at his IMDb page, you'll be like, oh shit, he was in that. Yeah, he's been in a yeah. lot of shit. Yeah, yeah. Breakout Kings and House of Cards for me are going to be the and Westworld are going to be the first three things I think. Always Sunny would probably be fourth. Yeah, yeah. House of Cards is the only one of those things other than Sunny that I've seen myself. Yeah, I have not seen any of those except for Always Sunny. So that's why I went to that one. House sure. of Cards was really good. 
Yeah, and that wasn't necessarily a, Mike, you shouldn't be doing this. It's, you're not the only person that immediately goes to Mick Poyle for Jimmy Simpson, and it makes me sad. Well, but maybe that'll lead them down a path to some of his other work. I hope so. And also, the McPoyles are fucking awesome. Yes. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I need some milk. <laughs> so you know they were sober because they were drinking milk all night. All right. So if you have any thoughts on your favorite Twilight Zone episodes or any of the other topics we talk about on the show, give us a call. Let us know at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And uh, you can find our older stuff on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, Podverse FM, Noon FM. We're all over the place. Just a brief typing and searching will find you in the world of 40 going on 14. Join us on our uh, Discord. You can look for the link on our Facebook page and join in the chat. It always gets usually, say, by 10, 11 o'clock. It's usually pretty ridiculous. Anyway, good distraction for all things going on. But yeah, so Joel, what do we have going on for next week? Next week? Well, is it your first time on the riverboat, Mr. Maverick? (laughs) This will be a fun episode. We're covering The Odd Couple, which is a play that three of us have been in together. It's an amazing movie, great show, and a mediocre remake. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a little nervous about the remake. But because we've got access to CBS All Access for 30 days, now 60 if you'd like, for free, seemed like a good time to do the show. Hey, CBS, if you're looking for sponsors, hey, yo, we have dozens of listeners. Dozens. <laughs> we demand respect. <laughs> All right. So thank you very much for listening. Watch out for that corner. Watch out for uh, any sort of weirdness or devil heads or anybody offering you a deal on the crossroads. But uh, cornfields. Yeah. Watch out for cornfields. Nothing ever good happens ever in a cornfield. It's good. It's really good. It's good. I absolutely love The Twilight Zone. It's one of my uh, prisoner-type favorite things because it was something that I... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I offend the dogs? Sorry about that. They're agreeing with you. Hold on. <laughs> Obviously, I will, I will cut this out. Not that big of a deal. To serve man is a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dogs don't like The Twilight Zone, I guess. Jeez. All right. So back uh, to the Everything good with the dogs? All that yeah, shit? they're all settled again. All right. So as I was saying, uh, five, four, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. Yeah. This. Jesus, <laughs> 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 your dogs have great timing. Oh my god! Oh, you just let the dog be on this show, uh, man. <laughs> that was great. Jesus.